the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What do Princess Diana, Winston Churchill, and George W. Bush all share in common? Have I stumped you? They all are related. Ancestry tells us that they all are dated back, ironically, given one is our president, to England and an English squire in the 15th century by the name of Henry Spencer of Badbury in Northamshire. Badbury lived in the 15th century and was married to Isabella Lincoln. Genealogists tell us that Bush's specific British heritage goes even farther back to British royalty to King Henry I, the son of William the Conqueror. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Have you ever noticed as of late, by late I talk in terms of Christendom, 20, 30, 40 years, um, how we're fascinated by genealogy. It's arisen an entire industry to find one's own roots, uh, and we are fascinated with those who have specific uh, historic family lines. Um, there was even, I believe, a few years back now, a television series about tracing those celebrity figures back to their roots, and then, of course, shameless advertisements throughout about you too can do the same. <laughs> we're fascinated by it. We're fascinated by where we come from. And yet, in the midst of a culture that is fascinated by historic lineage, popular figures, stands a very different story biblically. Royal lineage, biblically, goes back to people like Rahab, the harlot, Ruth, the Moabitess, these unlikely characters down through Christendom that lead to the line of King David and ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very different story. In many ways, as we wrap up on this Sunday, our stewardship series in Ruth, and it lands on this All Saints Sunday, all these things converge fittingly around the way that God uses ordinary people for extraordinary means in their generation. Something for us to reflect on this day. And as we think about how we make commitments before the Lord, or recommitments as we'll do with the renewal of our baptismal vows as well, the responses this day, we think about how that falls to us as we commit ourselves once more to the use of our days, our time and our talent and our treasure to glorify God in our own generation. So as we reflect on that and tuck away this idea of legacy and lineage, let's look at Ruth chapter 4 together. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bibles as well as we wrap up this uh, series this morning. Just as a quick flyby recap, of course, Ruth, remember, opens in a very tumultuous time. Everyone did, as the book of Judges says, right in their own eyes. Um, difficult circumstances. Naomi and her family go to Moab the land of their enemies, there every male in their line dies, and then Ruth returns with Naomi back to the land of her people, and there they find some help in the generosity of Boaz, this family member of theirs. 
And then last week, we left off with this um, proposal of marriage by Ruth, a very uncanny thing in those days, to, Bo- to a Boaz. Um, and he offers to do that, but says there's a more pressing legal issue at hand with which he must first attend before he himself can redeem them. With that backdrop, we pick up in Ruth chapter 4, as Boaz, true to his word, goes from the threshing floor at the harvest season to the city gate, and there awaits this near kinsman redeemer for whom the lot would fall to redeem this family of Elimelech. The gate is a place of public forum in Israel. It's both the judge, uh, the judgment place, it's um, the communal gathering place, it's where formal business would be done. And so there Boaz goes and waits. And he waits for, interestingly, this unnamed figure, this next of kin. Why he's unnamed, we'll see in a moment. And when he arrives, Boaz begins the formal process of initiating um, this legal exchange. He begins first by calling this man kindly to the side to indicate there is a legal matter at hand to tend to. And then, as was common, the elders of the city would be out at the gate during the day, waiting for what business would take place. And so Boaz gathers them up to attend to and witness what will unfold. And then as we see in these verses, um, in verse 3 and 4 and following, Boaz lays out the case, lays out the need for Elimelech and his family and asks this kinsman redeemer to redeem this family. Um, Being widows in the land, the sale of their land and their inheritance would provide for their needs for the remainder of their days, and it would free them from any debt that they may have. And so, this man, after hearing it, and is challenged or called by Boaz to redeem this situation, at the end of verse 4 says, I'll redeem it. But then, as we move forward, we discover things quickly change, because Boaz, a man of his word, said he would not forget Ruth. And so, he says, when you inherit the land, you also inherit Ruth who is this wife of Elimelech's son. And in those days, of course, if they didn't have a family line, it would end with their generation. And so there was a a provision in the law in the Old Testament to tend to that. So she would wed this next of kin, and by God's grace would then perpetuate the line through children they would have. Because of that new factor, this man says no. And the reason why is because he's likely already has, cannot complicate this and impair my own inheritance, he says in verse 6. He already has kids. He's already settled his affairs. And he knows that if Ruth enters the scene and bears a son, then the whole inheritance gets reshuffled. And so knowing that, not wanting to incur any risks, not wanting to mess things up that he's figured out, he backs out. And for that reason, his name is not even known to anyone but God through the rest of Christendom. And he quickly proposes that Boaz, go ahead with this. Um, He's so quick to throw that sandal off and propose that that deal that he doesn't even give a thought to the inheritance that's actually rightly his. He could have laid claim to the land or the assets um, in some way that were Elimelech's, only allowing for the sale of the particular land, um, in this case, for the benefit of Ruth and Naomi. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with this. And so quickly he goes, and Boaz quickly steps in and is willing to tend to these affairs. 
And then almost prophetically, at the end of this book, we see that um, as Boaz redeems this situation, he ends by asking the elders and those who are gathered to witness, which was a formal thing, so that no one could go back and say, it didn't happen that way. Here this day, what is being proposed? You hear what's happened. You are witnesses, he says, Boaz, in verse 10. And then almost prophetically, they respond. They could have just said, yes, we're witnesses. There ends the verse. But they add this prophetic response. May the Lord make this woman who's coming in your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Knowing lineage there and knowing some of your biblical history, as I trust you do, we know that Rachel and Leah were two figures who were barren initially until the Lord opened their womb and from them came a great family line. Leah was the mother of Judah, the clan from which all these figures hail. And um, also this lineage of Perez is an upright character in their clan. And so they see the integrity of Boaz in his dealings. Then they wish that God will continue and they pray or proclaim that God would continue to grant them favor. And then the book closes in this beautiful tribute to what God does. Indeed, he does grant them a son. And as it closes, um, not just Ruth, but Naomi's redeemed. As in chapter 1, she calls herself Mara, which means bitter. Um, and now God has turned that whole situation around as she holds a grandson in her arms, Obed, who they name and tell her, the women of the city, that Ruth has been to her more than seven sons would have been because of her faithfulness. It's incredible. It's an incredible story of redemption and grace. And as we know, zooming out, as we looked at last week, um, and well done, reading the, the family lineage that just sneaks up at the end of that book if you're not ready for it. You did well. Um, I wouldn't press to ask you to read this, but in a few short weeks, we see where all this lineage goes as we begin the journey to Christmas and Advent and move forward um, as we do in the lineage that we get in Matthew 1. It's not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for that place and time, but there in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, down, skipping a few more verses, to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where that goes. And it's fitting this day to sit back and think about that because I think it gives us hope. Hope wherever we are this day. It's a beautiful legacy, a beautiful way that we look at how God can take what seems to be particularly hard and trying times and turn them around for triumph in his greater plans and purposes, and not just triumph for this family, but even more broadly. When we think about it and we reflect on it, remember if the book of Judges close and Ruth opens with everyone did what was right in their own eyes, everyone was highly individualistic, did whatever they wanted, didn't really have a concern for neighbor or the law, um, from that fractioned culture came this one faithful family who persevered through every trial and circumstance, seeking God's will, seeking to be faithful at every step along the way. And out of that, they drew together an entire nation back into community under the Davidic line a generation later. I mean, it's incredible. 
Never can we say when we look at stories like this that, well, my faithfulness really won't matter. What does it really matter anyways? We never know. We never know what may happen. In fact, the story before us here, thinking on this All Saints Sunday of legacies and um, what God does and those down throughout Christendom, we do well to recall that any saint throughout history often never lived to see the fruit of their faithfulness, at least not fully. I mean, sure, maybe they got to see David in their old age, but they never saw David mature and the Davidic line begin. And let's say somehow miraculously they're one of these biblical figures that lead the long and full life. They wouldn't have ever known that that would lead to the redemption of all of humanity later from that same legacy that they left. It's amazing when we think about it. And we shouldn't overlook the much broader impact that God can have through the choices that we make. And as we think on this, I think there's a question for us to reflect on as we close on this image of a lasting legacy, not just one we leave in this life, but one we live in this life. And it's this, what will my legacy, what will yours be? What will be said of us? When all is said and done, does it matter what I've accomplished? Does it matter um, the things that have happened? Does it matter the trials and the triumphs? Or does it matter... At the end of my days, what goes on my headstone is faithful servant of God. That's really all that matters in this life. All else passes away. You know the rest of the book. Um, at least God redeems it. Um, but all those things don't stand as monuments to anyone but him. And as we think about um, this on this day, and um, in a response to it in several ways a little later this morning, um, I think we do well to recall that if we could gather I mean, if I had a microphone and you had Peter and Paul, Ruth and Boaz, um, a Jai Crowther, who's the first missionary uh, of, of ethnic descent in Africa, uh, all the names of the figures down throughout history that we don't even know, even the ones who just led seemingly quiet and simple lives, and they were all standing up here, and you could interview everyone, they would never tell you that they did it for their name. They never did it for their glory, but they did it to glorify the one who they pursued in this life, namely Jesus. And so as they've finished their race and they've run their leg of the race, my friends, it's our time to think about what our response is in our leg of the race, in our generation. What will that be? What will our legacy be? Not just when we leave this life, but as we live this life now. What truly matters in the small, seemingly ordinary decisions we make and even the strife that we face, not wash, whitewashing over the challenges that we work through in this season. For Ruth stands as a testimony to us that God can redeem any situation and often does so in amazing ways. To us, it's extraordinary, but these are just the ordinary ways that God works throughout Christendom. It's amazing when we think about it. So as we conclude um, on this All Saints Sunday, thinking about this legacy, thinking about these saints that loom large in our minds, you and I have a response to make. In a few moments, there'll be a chance for you to bring a commitment for next year up to the altar and make a commitment to the Lord with my family and our clergy by putting those in the basket there. If you don't have a card, you can get one this morning and drop it in the offering plate and we'll gather them up next week. Um, for those viewing remotely, you can do the same and mailing it in. We'll gather them up next week on your behalf.
But we have a choice to make. And if you're new today and you think, oh gosh, this is the first Sunday I stepped in, um, or you're still deciding if this is your church home, grab a card, not because we expect you at all to fill out a financial portion, but there's something there about how you use your time. Will you make a commitment in investing in worship? Will you make a commitment in serving the Lord through the abilities he's given you, God-given or ordinary? Will you reflect on that? Whether you commit to do that here or somewhere, you need to be grounded. Um, you're here today, and you need to think about where that call is upon your life. Um, because we all need to think about that. We all have to consider our legacy, not when it sneaks up on us, for we never know the number of our days, um, but how we lead it every day in the little ways that we walk through this life and in the big choices that we make, never knowing what they may be. And on this day, as we call to mind even those faces that are nearer to us, those faces that we knew personally, those towering faithful figures who led to us to be formed and sit in these pews or chairs, I should say, today, um, reflect on what they did. They finished the race. The choice now is yours and mine to make a commitment to live and leave a legacy so that our lives may bear witness to what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do as you proclaim every week in part of the Eucharistic prayer. So that this church that we call St. Barnabas may stand faithfully for Jesus until he returns and calls whoever remains in these walls home with him. So that we who have faithfully given of our treasure may see the gospel advance in our own day and then tee it up for the generation that grabs the baton when our race is done. So that we who faithfully given of our talent in the way that we use our gifts and abilities may allow the body of Christ in this place to function fully and properly. And so that we who have given our time as a living sacrifice unto God may grow up in every way to him who is the head, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It comes in choices, in ordinary choices that we make today and every day in the way that we steward our lives for his extraordinary ends. I guarantee you we may never see the fruit of those in our lifetime, but by God's grace, you will. You will when you stand in Jesus' presence with the Ruths and the Boazes, the Peters, the Augustines, the Agis, and the towering figures down throughout Christendom, and even the ones that are known to us in this place, the Cathys and the Bills and the Bettys and the Clems, who left a lasting legacy in their generation so that we may rejoice in their presence and all who have gone before us with all the saints in his presence forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.